Again, I ask that you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and this morning we're asking the Lord to open His Word to us and teach us from the ending of verse 11 down into verse 12. So let's pray to that end that the Lord would help us. Our Father, we come before you having sung praises to you, having given you the glory and honor you deserve through song. We come now to give you honor and glory through attention given to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would take these words, open them to us, help us to be edified and built up in them. Father, we know that you speak through your word. It is the means that you have chosen to work in the hearts of believers. Lord, would you equip us this day by the preaching of your word, by the reading of it? Would you do for us what we can't do for ourselves? Would you give us the ability to hear of your spirit? That you would fix what is wrong in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Would you mend us unto your own glory, unto your own praise? May Jesus Christ be exalted, we ask in his name. Amen. In his commentary on Ephesians, I've mentioned Ian Hamilton several times. He brings out two analogies that I think is helpful for us as we think about the church, our place in it, and how we all reach spiritual maturity together. The two analogies he uses... First, he speaks of those that think of the church like a train. Let me quote his words. He says, Some think of the church as a train where all the passengers sit comfortably and passively until at last they arrive at their destination brought there by the giftedness of their leaders or, to keep with the train analogy, the conductor. Secondly, he says, and in contrast, the scriptures liken the church to an orchestra where all the members play their part and contribute to the symphony of service to God. And when we read Ephesians 4, in fact, when we read what the New Testament teaches us as a whole concerning the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must associate our minds, ourselves, with that second analogy, where we're all coming together. We have all been gifted by the ascended Lord Jesus Christ to perform some service to one another, and in performing that service to one another, we are performing a service to Him, worshiping, honoring, and glorifying Him. So these two analogies, I think Ian Hamilton is right, they constitute the two main ways people understand, understand the ministry of the local church. One saying, let's just be on the train, be present and accounted for, and be carried along by the church and those leading the church to our final destination. Secondly, and biblically, let's be present and actively serve, not just seeking to be served, but 
actively serving and ministering the gift that we've been given so that all of the other members of the body will then arrive together into what Paul calls in the 13th verse, a verse that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. He says, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I think these verses plainly teach us if we are to arrive at that place, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature-minded man, to the measure and the stature of fullness of Christ, it's going to take all of us working together to get us there. It's going to take every part doing its share. The church in the world is under such assault by the world system and the power of the God of this age, as Paul called Satan the devil in the second chapter, that we cannot go it alone. And even if we subscribe to that line of thought, then we take that a step further and we say we cannot go it alone, nor can we just by our mere presence get to where we want to go. In these two analogies, the first will definitely fail you. The first will fail you. No pastor, no plurality of pastors are sufficient to conduct the, quote, train of church into the rail yard of Christian maturity. Let me make a confession to you before God. I alone cannot get you there. I need the Spirit's help to get me there. I need your help to get me there. The second analogy also will fail you. It has pitfalls of its own. Though it is the biblical analogy, it doesn't go without some bit of danger to it. And I'll quote John MacArthur here. He says, Attendance is a poor substitute for participation. Attendance is a poor substitute for participation. Saying you subscribe to the, quote, symphony analogy of the church and then living faithfully, actually, perseveringly in a way that you play your part unto the glory of God and the building of His church are two very different things altogether. But yet when we read Ephesians chapter 4, let's just go back to verse 7 and read down a couple of verses to be reminded that this is exactly what the Scriptures are teaching that each one of us, in verse 7, to each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So last week, we went back and we looked and we read about the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And the 11th verse tells us that it is this Christ, he emphatically, he himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for this reason. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we would no longer be children, 
tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. The whole body joined and knit together. Notice Paul says, by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, saying you subscribe to this idea, this biblical teaching, that you're a part of every person, every part doing its share, and then actually perseveringly, week after week, Playing your part, doing your role is something altogether different. You might recognize the name William Hendrickson. He adds to what John MacArthur says, even I think a little more strongly. Again, MacArthur says, attendance is a poor substitute for participation. William Hendrickson in his commentary goes so far as to say, unless with a view to the service of other members and adequate preparation being made, attended by a desire for the association of the saints and with a goal of wholehearted participation. If all of these things are not in order, he says you are bound to desecrate the Sabbath day. Did you hear what he said? What he's saying is to have a right view of your part of the Lord's church on the Lord's day is to come having prepared your heart, prepared your mind with a desire to assemble together, to participate, to minister your gift. And where that is lacking, where that is lacking, there is bound to be a Sabbath day desecration. I understand that those are strong words. I understand that they come to us and they kind of slap us aside the face. But sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need it. Too often, we do settle for attendance alone and think that we have been faithful to Christ to be merely present in the service. We settle for that because it's a struggle even to get there sometimes. And we delude ourselves in thinking that bodily presence is fulfilling the requirements of assembling ourselves together. Out of Hebrews chapter 10, we quote that verse a lot, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But do you remember that in the context in which we find that verse, on the front side of it and on the back side of it, it is in order to provoke one another to love and good works as you forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, exhorting one another daily. The New Testament deals with us in reality, in the reality of our Christian experience. And it deals with us and tells us and lets us know that each member is necessary. I need you as much as you need me and everyone else to provoke you and me to stir up love and good works. The world that we live in sucks those things out of us. We need to be exhorted daily, certainly weekly, to stay with Christ, to walk with Christ, 
not to, to walk away from him. This is right where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4. The expectation is high. Christ sets the bar very high. And we have no right to lower the standard, to make it easier. So last week we began in verse 11. And we looked at the first three gifts, if you will, that he himself has given to his church. We looked at apostles, prophets, evangelists. And I want to stop there and ask the question, what do all of these, including the pastor teacher that we'll get to later today, what do all of these have in common? And I want to answer that in two parts. The first part is... They all have in common the ministry of the Word in some way, shape, form, or fashion. The ministry of the Word. The apostles being intimately related to the living Word Himself, Jesus Christ, having been eyewitnesses of His resurrection, or as Paul had Christ reveal Himself to Him on the road, they saw the living Word and they were commissioned by Him to preach that Word and to put it in writing. And what we have given to us in the Apostles' Doctrine is the sufficient Word of God that is able to accomplish everything in the life of a Christian. The Scriptures are sufficient. Secondly, the prophets. We noted the order. that this, The order points to the fact that this is a New Testament office that Paul is referring to, not the Old Testament prophets. Prophets like Agabus, who in the New Testament era, before there was a written word, spoke the word of God directly, as directly inspired of the Lord. And then that gets us down to the evangelists. Only a handful of times in the New Testament do we run across this word not in association with the work that every Christian is called to in the Great Commission to do the work of an evangelist. The only person designated as an evangelist in the New Testament is Philip in the book of Acts. Philip was powerfully enabled to preach the good news of Christ. There was a response to it, a revival of sorts. So all three of these first offices, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, what they have in common is the ministry of the Word to some degree, and that brings us down to the last, some pastors and teachers. And I would be numbered amongst those that would say that this refers to one office with a dual function. I don't think that Paul is saying that there are some pastors and then some teachers as if these are separate offices, but one office with two functions, with two two things to work out in the ministry of the church. And this too comes through the preaching and the teaching of the word. We ask the question, what else is the pastor to teach than the word of God? So that's the first way to answer the question, what do they all have in common? 
They all have in common some way of ministering the Word of God to the people of God for a common goal. And again, that end goal is to bring the members of the church to that perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to be conformed to the very image of Christ. So let's deal with this last office a little more fully. This office of pastor-teacher. Some would say that this is the only one of the four that has an ongoing, unending work in the New Testament church until the return of Christ. And again, it's in distinction from the work of an evangelist rather than those who were uniquely called and equipped to fulfill that office in the New Testament. It is the only category that has a corresponding New Testament qualification for the office. There is no New Testament qualification for an apostle, nor for a prophet, nor even an evangelist, but there are qualifications for those who would serve in this office of pastor teacher you find those in 1st Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 one of those qualifications is that he be able with the ability given him by God that he be able to teach this corresponds to the other words in the New Testament that tell, speak of this office the office of bishop elder overseer pastor, all speak to the same office in the church. The New Testament lists for us two offices. One we're studying here, the pastor-teacher. The other, according to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, is that of deacon. And there are only those two. There can be more than one in each local assembly, but there are only those two offices. This one has a dual function or definition. The pastor or the shepherd aspect of this is denoting that this person has some intimate knowledge of his flock. The teacher aspect of this denotes that he has not just an intimate knowledge of his flock, but also some intimate knowledge of the word that he is teaching. When we put them together... It refers to one office, a man filling one office called and gifted of God to teach and preach the word amongst the people that he intimately knows. This can be done in public, as now. It can be done in private. And this speaks to the first part of the answer to the question, what do all of these have in common? Christ has gifted his church with those who minister the word to the church. This should be what we look for in the church of Jesus Christ. The second part of the answer, what do these have in common, is found in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the 12th verse has been 
scrutinized. The question is asked, how many commas belong in verse 12? (laughs) Some would say three. Some would say two. Some would say one. Some would say none. Where and how you place the commas into verse 12 greatly dictates the way you understand it. The King James, for instance, places a comma between for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, as though the work of the ministry goes back to and rests solely upon the pastor teacher. Other translations remove that comma and shows that the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, that is the duty and the office and responsibility of the pastors and teachers, but the work of the ministry is for the saints as a whole. That's a better way to understand it. Isn't it amazing how much a small comma can affect the meaning of the word, of the teaching of Scripture? So what Scripture is teaching here is it's not the responsibility of the pastor-teacher alone to do the work of ministry. It's his responsibility or their responsibility to equip the saints to do that work. The New Testament, if we're faithful to the teaching of the New Testament, expects a lot out of each member of Christ's church. Every member doing its share, every part doing its share into the edifying of itself in love. We're going to get there next week, but I want to deal more with this word equipping in verse 12. And the thinking so far goes along these lines. Christ, after ascending into heaven, after accomplishing his work of redemption for us, He gifted through grace, according to the measure of His gift, those that would carry out these offices in the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The word equipping here has to do with completely furnishing something or someone to perform a task. Perhaps you've been set to a task at some point in your life and not been really equipped to carry out that task. That's frustrating, isn't it? For someone to tell you, I want you to do this, I want you to accomplish this, but then there is nothing given you, no instruction given you where to acquire what you will need to perform the task. Well, that's where this word equipping comes in. With the great expectation placed upon the the body of Christ and each individual member, we cannot use an excuse that Christ has not equipped us to do what He has expected of us. This word means that He will completely furnish the ability to do what is His expectation. Interestingly, This word was used in Paul's day and time in a medical way to refer to the setting of a bone that had been broken. To put it back into a rightful place so that it would be healthy again. 
It's the same word used by Matthew in chapter 4, verse 21, when it says that James and John were in the boat mending their nets. And so if we read it that way, they were equipping or completely furnishing their nets for the next day's fishing. When we bring all of those meanings back to this word, we understand that what is happening through the ministry of the word, through the pastor and the teaching that is performed in the New Testament church, that each one of us, all the members, are being equipped, completely furnished, to perform the work that Christ expects of us. And using the figurative sense of the word, it helps us to understand that what the equipping here is not necessarily just knowledge. Knowledge is essential. We need to know more than we currently do about the Scriptures, every one of us, all of us included. But that is not the be-all, end-all of this word equipping. It's not just the knowledge, it's the right use of what you know. And sometimes it's realizing, humbly, that you don't know what you need to know. I like what Ian Hamilton again says about this word. He says, what Paul is here vividly describing is the healing, restorative, powerful ministry of God's Word. The ministry of God's Word is never merely to inform your mind. It is never merely to enlighten you. God has given the ministry of His Word to His church in order to transform, to heal, heal of various spiritual sicknesses, to make the church whole, to restore it to a fit working order, thereby enabling it to exercise a work of ministry that will build up the body of Christ. I think we should keenly be aware of the fact that the day in which we live, we need this type of equipping of the Holy Spirit through the Word. I identify so much with what Ian Hamilton says. This equipping refers to the healing of various spiritual sicknesses. It refers to the making whole or restoring to a fit working order. The church in America today is so anemic, so weak. We could say that the church in America today is not fulfilling in many places and in many ways the expectation of ministry in the world because the church will never minister in the world to the degree of effectiveness that Christ expects until the church ministers inside one to another. It's right of us to say that we want this church. Let's bring this close to home. No reason to talk about anybody else right now, right? Let's talk about us. We have no real expectation to say we want to be a vibrant beacon city set on a hill to bear witness to this community 
to be used in this community until we get this right. And then what church history bears out is that once this is right in a local church, it cannot but be the city set on a hill, useful in the community around it. So I agree, certainly wholeheartedly, we want to be known as an evangelistically-minded church. We want to be known as a biblically faithful church. Those things are good and they are right desires. We want to be known as a biblically ordered church. But we should also have the accompanying desire that we want to be known as a church where each part does its share. We're not coming just riding the train week by week. Being unwilling to, unwilling to get involved into the very often trials or messes of other people's lives. You can't read the New Testament and try to be faithful to it at all without reading all of those one another passages which go back and take us back to this every part doing its share, causing the growth of the body in love. This is where we have to start. And this word equipping tells us that we have been given everything in the scriptures that we need for the work of ministry. And don't miss that word. It doesn't say for the fun of ministry. It says for the work, the labor, the agony sometimes of ministry. Should we expect anything less? This work of ministry, whether it's one to another, Christian to Christian, believer to believer, or if it's believers to the outside world, those that have yet to to come to faith in Christ, should we expect for the Scriptures to define it in any other way besides work? Take a serious-minded approach to this text and, and determine in your mind to do what it says, to recognize that you have been gifted of Christ and that you are expected of Him to minister that gift in the church. And what you're going to find out is that it is work. It's difficult. Now, thankfully, there are, are seasons of great, I guess we might call it ease, where the work just seems to come natural and it's easy. But then there are other seasons when the, the, the definition of this word really begins to show itself. It is indeed the work of ministry. The word there is service. This is the mindset that we have to begin to, to come around to. That Christ has saved us, placed us in a body to work, to serve one another. Not just to be served. Everybody, and I'll stand at the head of the line, everybody wants to be served. Not many are willing to give themselves to the work of ministry. To ask the question, how are you doing? And then to stand willingly, waiting for the onslaught of that answer to come with all of its force. 
Sometimes people do that to you, don't they? You're just walking by casually saying, how are you doing? And then they tell you. Most of the time, you're going to get the standard answer. Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing well. But what you need to know, based upon your own heart and your own experience, many of those people are not fine, and they are not doing well. If you were to take just a moment and to pry a little deeper, you would find that out. But then what happens? Then you're responsible to help, to do something, to not just say, yes, I'll pray for you, but to to give yourselves to prayer and, and agony for them. Not to just say, I'll pray for your financial situation, if that's what it is, but to give of your own resources to them. That's the work of ministry. To have someone respond and say, this is going on in my life or that in the life of my family. I really need someone to come alongside of me and help me. That's the work of the ministry. Some have been uniquely gifted by Christ to perform this work of encouragement or edification, acts of mercy, all types of things. And then I believe what we find as we read this fourth chapter, when we read it all the way to its end, and we look at, not just in this chapter, the rest of the New Testament on this, that when the believers in a said congregation begin to function in this way, then Christ will do great things with them. But for that church that is content to come and sit on the train, be pulled a little long down the track today, come back next week and perhaps you'll get pulled a little further down the track and not be actively involved in one another's lives, don't expect too much. I think it's true in this regard, very much so in the life of a church. You're going to get from the church what you put into it. And I'm not discounting the spiritual aspect, the work of the Spirit in us at all. I'm just calling you down to to base level, dirt level. You're going to get out of the church of Jesus Christ what you put into it. Your time and your effort. Let me just speak to you from my experience, if I can. I've seen it over and over. What happens in some churches, churches that I've been a part of, a few. A few in the church will realize not just the responsibility, but the blessing of this responsibility, and they will give themselves to the church give themselves, give themselves, give, give, and give until we use the phrase burnout, right? I've not just seen it in in church members, I've seen it in pastor friends who just for years give themselves to the church and then there's this mysterious flame out, burnout. Well, that tends to happen when every part is not doing its share. When a few are doing the work of the whole, then those few are overburdened, overtired, overtaxed, straining 
to perform what needs to be done, and over time they just wilt. Now that's not to say that Christ in mercy to them and to the church revives them, reinvigorates them. That happens. Thank God that happens. But realizing that the work of ministry is to the saints, for the saints, plural, should not be as shouldn't be as, as mind-blowing as some think it to be. We all have something to do, a part to play, unto the honor and to the glory of Christ. And notice, we'll get to this more fully in, recent, in coming weeks, but notice verse 14. Part of the per- perfect man, the measure and stature and fullness of Christ, is to no longer be tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Man, the strange winds of doctrine are blowing in our day. They've blown for a long time. They've blown, blown since the New Testament days, and yet what we find is some just going wherever those doctrines take them. So this is a part of the blessing of being a part of a body that edifies itself in love. Notice that last part of verse 16. According to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. Certainly it's true to say that the Scriptures edify the body. Certainly it's true to say that the Spirit of God using the Scripture edifies the body. But it's also equally true to say, according to this verse, that the body of the church edifies itself in love. Our desire should be to honor and glorify Christ through doing our share in His church. Alleviating burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. If you would look just quickly with me at that passage in Romans chapter 12, I love the way that the New King James that I read, how it, what it places over the ninth verse in Romans chapter 12, obviously uninspired, just an editorial addition, but what my Bible says over verse 9, behave like a Christian. Well, how does a Christian behave? How are we to edify ourselves in love? How is every member to do its share? Well, it begins by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. Really, truly, sincerely love one another. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. This is something that we find over and over in the Scriptures is humility, the call to humble yourself before your brother or sister, put their wants or needs, desires ahead of your own, giving preference not lagging in diligence. What does that mean? Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. But fervent in spirit as you serve the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. 
continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. And do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men, if it is possible. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's just a New Testament snapshot of what living as a Christian should look like one to another. That's a biblical exposition from one scripture to another of what it means for every part to do its share, for the body to edify itself in love. And there should be something in my heart and something in your heart to so desperately want to settle down in this fourth chapter of Ephesians and to have your life, my life, the life of this church reflected here because it is so different and unique than what the world has to offer. You won't find this in the world. You'll find it by someone else who has received mercy from Christ, whose sins have been forgiven. They know how much they've been forgiven and they love Christ and they love you because you're their brother or sister in the Lord. There is that family bond. You've, you've experienced this, I'm sure, from time to time. You'll meet someone for the very first time Perhaps you've never laid eyes on them, but there is that immediate Christian bond. Why is that? Well, it's Christ in them, Christ in you. I don't remember who says this, but who said this, but I've, it's stuck in my head. The Christ in me is drawn to the Christ in you. And so there is that, that immediate connection that begins to take root and the accompanying desire to serve one another and to get beyond the, the selfish expectations of what is the church going to do for me rather than thinking what can I do, what do I have to give and to serve one another. And then the byproduct of that is the church is going to pour into your life. Lord willing, we have a desire, perhaps even increasing, to experience this type of equipping. And I, I want to go back and, and just point to the fact that this equipping comes primarily from the Scriptures. It fixes what is broken in me, and it fixes what is broken in you. It mends the net of your heart and mine. And it enables us to do the work of ministry. I love this New Testament honesty, the work of ministry. It's not always easy. 
but it's an expectation. And because it's an expectation of Christ, He will give you what you need to perform it, to be faithful in it. Sometimes, as with everything in the Christian life, we have to look at a text like this and just repent of our wrong thinking, our wrong mindset, our wrong attitudes concerning the church of Jesus Christ. And we know He is faithful, He is just to forgive, to cleanse, to renew. If we could only begin to grasp the affection, the love that Christ has for his church. And just get a little bit of that. I realize when you talk about the word, when you just say the word church, all immediate different connotations come to mind. We need to strive to have that immediate thing that comes to mind when the word church is said, what the New Testament means. A people, an assembly that have been drawn out of the world, that have been drawn to Christ, had their sins forgiven, united to Christ by faith, have the hope of heaven now in them, living unto His glory, striving together to honor and to glorify Him. There's probably not a person in the room that hasn't had, that's been a Christian for any length of time, that hasn't had some bad experience in church. It's just a fact, a sad fact, but a fact nonetheless. There's not a person that hasn't had something that you can go back to where some church has hurt you, harmed you, and then from that point forward, you're just in a shell. You're not going to expose yourself too much. Because someone might take out the sword and and stab you or get you with it. And you live the rest of your church days in that shell. And two things don't happen when you're in that shell. You can't be ministered to effectively, nor do you minister effectively. It's just you inside a shell of you. God, free us from that mindset. Help us to see ourselves more in Ephesians 4. Every part, doing its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would use it in our lives for good, that you would equip us to do what you've called us to do, that you would fix what is broken in our understanding, in our hearts, in our minds. Restore us unto the joy of the Lord. Restore us unto the joy of serving you, our Lord Christ, within your body. What a privilege, what an honor you have given to us to be a part of your bride to be a part of that group of people who are living life on this earth with an expectation and a hope of being taken to live with you forever. 
in a place where there is no sin, no tears, no weeping. Father, what a tremendous calling you have given to us. Lord, help us to be faithful to it. Not to shirk our responsibilities to one another, but to, by grace, fully embrace them and do the work of ministry. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.